Medical imaging devices have come a long way over the years, and one of the most commonly used and least invasive tools is ultrasound. Ultrasound works by using sound waves to create 2D images of our internal organs. However, it's always been a quite dependent on the skill of the operator, requiring a steady hand and a keen eye to interpret the images accurately, which can sometimes lead to variability in the results. But here, where it gets exciting. Researchers from UC San Diego, led by Professor Zhu's lab, have taken a giant leap forward. They have developed an ultrasound technology that can continuously capture images of the heart without relying heavily on the operator's skills. What's more, they've harnessed the power of deep learning, creating an algorithm that can not only analyze these images, but also handle the massive amount of data produced by a wearable cardiac ultrasound. This breakthrough has the potential to revolutionize how we monitor patients in critical care settings and gain insights into the heart's functionality. And looking ahead, it might even reshape how we approach medical procedures and imaging for other organs. The future of medical imaging is looking brighter than ever. Join me today as we talk with Dr. Hu, the first author on the paper, a wearable cardiac ultrasound imager that was published in Nature this year. We're live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode. This is Delta, your podcast, and your host. My name is Rukan Odebashian. Um, I interview people who want to make a difference in healthcare, whether they are researchers, whether they are innovators, whether they are health tech startups, whether they are founders. And today I have a very special guest, Dr. Hu. Dr. Hu started his academic journey in China, where he obtained a bachelor's degree in applied chemistry from the University of Science and Technology of Beijing. Then he relocated to the United States to pursue an advanced studies at UC San Diego, earning a master's and a PhD in material science and engineering from the professor Sheng Zhu's group. In January 2023, that's when I read his paper and I was like, my mind was blown. He published a paper in Nature called A Wearable Cardiac Ultrasound Imager. This paper discusses a new technology that helps us obtain continuous cardiac monitoring via ultrasound. It's my honor to welcome this esteemed scholars of our podcast, Delta, and welcome, Dr. Hu. Yeah, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you. For, uh, hi, uh, Dr. Adbashian. Uh, nice to meet you, and uh, thank you for your introduction. Yeah, I'm Hongjie. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to share my experience and my stories uh, behind the, uh, the paper to everybody. Yeah. Thank you so much. So can you start off by explaining how cardiac ultrasound is done traditionally and what the limitations that face this old technology? Okay, no problem. So for the uh, traditional cardiac uh, testing, uh, the doctors or the cardiologist always ask, ask the patient to lie down and then they put the, uh, the traditional ultrasound probe on the human chest to do the imaging in order to comprehensively comprehensively uh, see the structure of the of the human heart uh, they always do the imaging from different view from different uh, directions and after they uh, get those beamed images of the human heart uh, they always extract some uh, critical cardiac parameters from those beamed images and uh, 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 typically they uh, they always manually uh, segment or manually contour the shape of the left ventricle from the beam of images and using the complex uh, calculation to extract 
uh, some critical uh, parameters such as stroke volume, cardiac output, injection fraction. Uh, this is a normal process. And the, in, uh, uh, specifically, I want to say another uh, uh, procedure of doing the cardiac uh, examination, which is called uh, the uh, stress echocardiography. Um, this uh, stress echocardiography is is for uh, testing the uh, the heart status under the stress, such as doing the exercise. Uh, and uh, uh, in this case, the cardiologist first asks the patient to lie down, and uh, the, uh, they do the testing. And then the cardiologist asks the uh, patient to do the exercise. For example, uh, running on the treadmill or riding uh, those stationary bicycle. Uh, and then uh, when the uh, the the heart beat, uh, beats the fastest, the uh, cardiologist asks the patient to lie down again for recovery. At this stage, the uh, cardiologist test the human heart again. So uh, this uh, are the uh, the current process of doing the cardiac e examination, and uh, uh, there are some limitations uh, of the traditional protocol and methods. Uh, I uh, I summarized uh, some major limitations. The first one is uh, the uh, the current ultrasound probe can only for those short term one time testing. Uh, when you go to the hospital you, uh, for those, those examination, uh, you always uh, are tested once, and then you, uh, you you are asked to go back home. But uh, some disease uh, are need, uh, are, are some disease are required for those long time continuous monitoring to tracking to track the progress of those disease and symptoms. This cannot be achieved by the current ultrasound probe. In addition. Uh, the uh, current ultrasound probe need, need the, uh, the operator, the expert, to handle the probe uh, to do the testing every time. So uh, it is uh, operator dependent. Uh, it also impedes uh, those uh, self-testing uh, and also continuous monitoring. This is the first limitation. The second limitation is uh, the current ultrasound probe uh, cannot, uh, cannot do the test during the exercise, as I just described, the cardiologist uh, can always uh, provide the uh, testing before and after during the exercise when doing the stress echocardiography, but cannot provide those uh, in motion testing uh, because of the uh, the bulky housing of the traditional ultrasound probe. This is the uh, second uh, major limitation. The third uh, limitation is uh, for those parameter extraction method. Uh, the current current method is very time consuming and labor intensive because the um, cardiologist needs to manually uh, control the shape of the left, left ventricle and also uh, perform those uh, com complicated uh, calculation. Even if those calculation can later be uh, replaced by the computer, but uh, the segmentation uh, or the control of the left ventricle still needs to be done by the uh, by the by the cardiologist. Uh, this um, makes the cardiologist uh, uh, to uh, to generate a lot of the data. They can they can only generate the the uh, sporadic data, and then based on those data, they provide those decisions. They diagnose the disease. So uh, above are those major limitations of the current ultrasound uh, technology.
Yeah, I completely agree with you. Like I've been through training in, during my medical training. Um, at one point, I entertained um, a lot of cardiology, and I was very interested in the echocardiogram. It, and it is very time consuming because, like, until obtain, obtaining good quality images, it takes at least 30 minutes, if not an hour, and you have to do it multiple windows. And there will be a technician who is trained to obtain the images, and then will be cardiologist who is going to read the images. And there, there are also like the problem with ultrasound that we say it a lot in the medical world is like, it really depends on the section that you look at your heart. For example, if you cut your heart, if you look at your heart because of the ultrasound is 2D, if you look at it vertically versus if you look at it from 30 degrees, it's, it's gonna be completely different. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's very time consuming and continuous monitoring, it's not there. Um, and the stress test using an ultrasound is very common. We use it a lot in medicine. Uh, yeah. And we look for any abnormalities in the wall motion. Anyways, so now let's talk about your paper and your device that can continuously yeah. and in very short time look at the heart and monitor the heart. So could you elaborate on the main component? Let's go anatomy. Let's go dissection. Let's look at the main component, particularly that adhesive structure that sticks to the skin because when we do an ultrasound, we're going to put gel and it's so messy. But in your paper, you discuss adhesive device that can attach to the skin. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, our device consists of the, the first, the triplock copolymer as a uh, substrate and a superstrate, and then the liquid metal as the stretchable electrodes, and then one, three composite as a piezoelectric components and the, the silver epoxy as a backing layer. So among these, compo uh, these components, the one, three composite and the backing layer are the ultrasound transducer uh, part that can transmit and receive the ultrasound wave. And the, uh, specifically the substrate and superstrate are the tri-block uh, tri copolymer. Um, this is a one kind of uh, elastomer. And specifically we use the SEBS, this material uh, as, a, as our substrate and superstrate. This material is very soft and highly stretchable. And uh, uh, when it's attached to human skin, it can adhere to the skin surface by van der Waals force. So um, uh, in summary, our, uh, our de device uh, with those elastomer material and uh, also uh, uh, those uh, liquid metal electrode uh, making the device more soft, more stretchable, and it can adhere to uh, the human skin and of, of, to, to, to provide the continuous monitoring, yeah. So just to contrast with the traditional handheld ultrasound. So mm. for example, I'm gonna go do an ultrasound on a patient. I have the probe and I put lots of gel. I put lots of gel and mm. then that's so sticky. And so for me, it's disgusting. And then like I go and stick that to the patient's chest. But with your device, it's just like an adhesive tape. Mm. Yes, uh, yes, uh, it's like a tape. It can conform to the human skin and uh, uh, it can deform with the skin. So uh, because as you know, the, uh, the traditional ultrasound probe is bulky, right? It cannot, uh, it cannot yes. uh, uh, fix on the skin, but our device can. And, uh, but here we still use some gel, a little bit gel, we, uh, but comparing to the traditional uh, uh, water-based gel, we use this oil-based gel. Uh, this gotcha. gel. This gel can uh, the, the reason that I'm using this gel is to uh, to prevent the evaporation 
of the gel because the water-based gel is easy to evaporate after uh, after uh, a while, right? But uh, for, uh, but if we want to provide the continuous long-time monitoring, the gel should be always there, not evaporate quickly. That's why we we use this uh, oil-based gel, a uh, very thin layer of oil-based gel. It can uh, help the ultrasound transmit to the human tissue. Yeah, but but uh, as I just said, the the uh, the, uh, the device itself is always uh, is uh, soft and stretchable, and it can conform to human uh, skin. Yeah, uh, like a tape. Amazing, amazing. My mind is blown. But with any new technology, one of the most frequently asked questions is the price. How much, the, in your opinion, would this wearable device cost, and is it reusable? Uh, yes. So, uh, uh, as it is still in, in the uh, laboratory stage, I cannot give an exact price. Uh, so, uh, those devices uh, are made manually by our lab mates. And uh, if I roughly estimate, uh, I think it costs around 100 to $200, just uh, uh, my rough estimation. And uh, it is re reusable. Uh, and I think it is cheaper than the price of the traditional ultrasound probe. Yeah. Yeah, like for me, I know in my training, um, lots of uh, my co-residents, they were going to buy an ultrasound probe. And like the cheapest, the cheapest, the cheapest you can get, and that's not a good quality, the handheld, the pocket one, it's at least two to $3,000, if not yeah. more. I know lots of my friends buy an ultrasound from their line of credit for 5,000 bucks or 10,000 bucks. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yes. wow. All right, so it's, it's it's cheaper, but right now we can't really comment on that because it's mainly uh, made in the lab. And if um, you, you mentioned that it is, reusable do you have an estimate like how many like when i'm going to take it from one patient with another patient is it like the adhesive part i'm going to use it is it like which part is going to be interchangeable like how does that work i think we can directly put to uh, uh put uh, from one patient to another patient without any changeable yeah, just maybe okay. just as uh, add a more oil based uh, copeland to the new exactly. body yeah, but for the device itself, we do not have to, uh, we do not have to change. Yeah. So it's just like the probe; you can sanitize it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And now let's talk about the image quality. Like one of the main problems that we face in medicine is like, oh, the image quality is poor. The image quality is good. Like ultrasound, it's one of those tests that is really dependent, and as you know, it's really dependent on the person who is performing it and person who is reading it. Mm. So. Speaking of the image quality, how would you compare the image quality obtained by the wearable device from those obtained by the regular ultrasound? Okay, yeah. Uh, first, we use the image from a regular ultrasound as a standard because it has developed for decades uh, of those rigid ultrasound uh, technology. Uh, and then uh, we uh, we we got the image from our wearable devices, and then we compare the uh, image from our device to the image from the uh, the standard read, uh, regular ultrasound based on those uh, structure of the heart. Uh, for example, can we uh, clearly see each component, each structure of the heart? Um, this is the uh, uh, th I think this is a qualitative uh, comparison, qualitative evaluation method. This is the first thing. The second thing is uh, we also have some. Uh, 
a quantitative method to compare the performance of our device uh, with the uh, regular rigid ultrasound probe. Uh, we um, uh, characterize, characterize some parameters uh, of two probes, such as those spatial resolution, contrast, penetration depth, uh, uh, signal to noise ratio, and so, uh, so on and so forth, uh, using those commercial professional uh, phantom, uh, because those phantoms, the, the function of those phantoms are, are, are for the characterization of the uh, a probe. So uh, we perform the characterization on those phantoms and compare uh, those parameters one by one uh, with each other. The, those are two methods to evaluate the image quality or the probe performance uh, of our device and the traditional uh, commercial device. Yeah. Gotcha. So in simple terms, like you are using the images obtained by the traditional device as the gold standard. Yeah. And you are comparing your images to the gold standard. Yes. yes. Gotcha. And when I was reading through your paper, you mentioned things like um, elevational, lateral, axial depth resolution. Could you just explain what this means in practical terms? Um, I'm sure we have lots of audience from cardiology or intensive care and they use this. So can you touch base a bit uh, about your device and how accurate it is in detecting those depth resolution when compared to the traditional ultrasound device? Okay, yeah, I would say uh, these terms are always used in the uh, engineering field for characterization, uh, to, for character, uh, characterizing the performance of the device. But it, it also can help uh, cardiologists to better understand the image. Uh, extra resolution is a resolution along the direction of the ultrasound wave propagation. High extra resolution allows the cardiologist to clearly di uh, distinguish between two structures that are close together in the depth direction. Uh, lateral resolution is a resolution perpendicular to the direction of ultrasound wave propagation. Uh, high lateral resolution allows the cardiologist to clearly distinguish between two structures as the same depth but at different lateral positions. Uh, elevational resolution is the third dimension of the ultrasound imaging, perpendicular to both axial and uh, lateral directions, also referred to as uh, slice thickness. So, so uh, high uh, elevational resolution helps the cardiologist uh, better distinguish structures in, in this dimension. In summary, um, uh, the, uh, these uh, three terms are uh, the parameters to characterize the spatial resolution of the probe in different directions. And the, the higher the, the uh, those uh, parameters uh, means the, the, uh, the well of the performance uh, of, this, uh, of this probe so that the uh, uh, cardiologist can get uh, the, the better image quality. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, um, and I'm curious about how this device is different from the traditional ultrasound handheld device when it comes to patient motion. Mm. So for example, when I'm obtaining an ultrasound image using the traditional probe, like I have to tell the patient, like don't move, I have to put the ultrasound on the chest and I have to make sure that they are stable. And for example, also there are some images, as you know, in the heart, they require the patient to lie on their left side or take a deep breath or exhale. Uh, so how with this device, uh, or how you, you, your device handles um, motion artifact, movement artifact, and does the image quality get affected by this or no? 
uh, I think our device has less influence by the movement of and the motion of the human uh, comparing with the traditional probe. Uh, it is because the material of the wearable de uh, device is elastomer, which is thicker than the traditional probe, a traditional ultrasound probe, so that it can conform to human body to keep a uh, relative consistent position with the uh, human skin. Uh, in addition, the wearable device is soft and stretchable, uh, which can help the, the the same, which can help the device keep relatively con consistent position, uh, even uh, people is doing the uh, do, doing movement and the uh, motion status. Uh, uh, moreover, moreover, we use a medical tape to adhere the uh, the wearable device to the human skin, which also helps the device fix on the skin when people are moving. And uh, uh, last but not least, uh, we use the ACF cable to connect our device with the uh, the backend control system. The ACF cable is very uh, light and very thin, so that uh, it will um, uh, reduce the uh, the burden of the uh, of the normal cable, which is very thick and heavy, uh, to the patch to the probe, so that it can um, reduce the influence uh, of the motion artifact. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. And I, I just want to comment here that so yeah. the ultrasound gives us wealth of information it's not only about the motion of the heart muscle itself is also we can detect abnormalities in the valve for example this is important especially in critical situations so i've done tons of rotation in the critical care and now come i'm having just a flashbacks when i'm in critical care or in the coronary care unit and you have a patient with acute heart attack and they suddenly develop shortness of breath this has many causes it could be a problem with the wall motion, it could be a valvular problem, it could be a muscular problem in the papillary muscles. So it has many causes, this acute shortness of breath and acute heart failure and the contents of MI. Mm. So the ultrasound here help us to not only look at the cardiac muscle itself, but also help us to detect motion analysis to the cardiac valves and diagnose problems with the cardiac valves. I do wonder, does your device also, or is your device able to detect valvular regurgitation or valvular stenosis through the M mode. And can you elaborate a bit if if it does, like how 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 the, how it does this and how it's compared to the regular ultrasound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, the point that you mentioned is very good, uh, and those points requires the high performance of the probe because you you only your probe only uh, have those. Uh, high sensitivity, high spatial resolution, and the uh, uh, high signal-to-noise ratio can uh, eat uh, test uh, tests such small structure of the valve, right? So uh, we consider the, uh, those things before we do this pro uh, project uh, in order to uh, uh, make it, in order to uh, achieve such uh, purpose. Uh, we do it. Uh, we do it uh, from both. Uh, uh, hardware aspect and the software aspect. Uh, from uh, in hardware aspect, we optimize uh, the uh, the the probe uh, material. We, for example, we use one three composite, which is a high performance piezoelectric material that can uh, can can provide a high signal to noise ratio when doing the uh, ultrasound testing. And then we uh, optimize the the structure of the element array. Uh, to make the pitch smaller than before and uh, make the aperture larger than before, so that the special resolution, spe specifically the uh, X, uh, the, the lateral resolution, is better than uh, previous design. Yeah, and uh, uh, 
from the the software aspect, uh, this in this case we we use more complicated but more advanced control strategy. Uh, the name is uh, the wide beam compounding, uh, compounding plan with uh, transmitting strategy. Uh, this strategy can um, make the uh, this uh, can improve the uh, signal to noise ratio and also the spatial resolution uh, among all uh, sonographic window comparing with uh, those traditional uh, plan wave or uh, monofocal strategies uh, so this helps a lot so uh, in summary we 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 achieve it based on both uh, uh, hardware and the software yeah aspects wow so it's not only cardiac one motion abnormalities it's bother abnormalities as well yeah I mean, yeah okay so what also caught my eye i'm just going through your paper here and like i took tons of notes i read it yesterday i read it a month ago i like it's just like it's 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 amazing paper um so you mentioned something early during our interview is uh, before going to that let me tell you how traditional and let let, let me tell the audience that traditional exercise test okay so medicine despite all these advances we still rely on basic physiology for example if i want to know if someone's heart performed well i would make them do exercise that exercise includes running or biking and that will increase their heart rate so if you have a not good performing heart your coronary arteries are relatively clear you will not have pain you will not have shortness of breath your heart rate is not going to increase or drop your blood pressure is not going to increase or drop so this is called the exercise test. And we have different ways of uh, looking at the heart after we exercise. So we can do an ultrasound, we can do an ECG, we can uh, do a PET scan. So we make the heart exercise and then we look at the heart with different modalities. One of the ways is doing a stress cardiac ultrasound. We make someone, sorry, we obtain images via ultrasound, as you mentioned earlier. And mm -hmm. then we make that person jump on a treadmill or jump on a bike. Mm -hmm. And then that comes off the treadmill, comes off the bike. And then we do obtain another imaging ultrasound. So as you can see, the traditional way does not include continuous monitoring of the heart during, before, and minutes after the exercise. Yeah. You, in your paper, your device, can they take cardiac wall motion normalities? Yeah. Before and after. During the exercise, can you expand a bit on this fascinating point? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think this is a, a one uh, innovative point of our work because we uh, I think we we provide a new testing protocol comparing uh, with the current uh, clinical protocol. Um, as you said, the the current cannot provide the continuous monitoring during the exercise. And comparing with uh, uh, I think I think ECG can do uh, can can do the test. Uh, uh, ECG ECG, test yes. Yes. Yeah. ECG testing can uh, can perform can be performed during the exercise but the ecg can only provide those uh, one dimensional signal right 1d signal not the image you cannot see the structure of the human heart uh, you, you can only see the, uh, the, the 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 rf signals and uh, but uh, uh, the the ultrasound can provide the the uh, the, the images uh, which means it can provide more information uh, to, uh, to to let you see the heart uh, that's why we want to make it achieve make this function uh, achievable and then uh, some uh, uh, the stress echocardiography is a very important uh, testing and uh, and uh, I, I know that some disease for example the heart failure uh, 
it appears only when the heart is under the intensive stress. Uh, so maybe, for example, when you're doing the exercise, uh, you uh, if you have the heart, uh, heart failure, uh, you, you can be tested. But when you go back to uh, go back to the bed to recovery, the symptom will disappear. But if if you only test after you doing the exercise, you may not capture this symptom, the symptom, at least the onset of of symptom. That's why we, uh, based on those uh, requirements or those needs, we uh, we use our device to do the testing uh, to prov to achieve this function. Yeah, I think that's what I should say because the the the, the entire process has been described before. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 mind blowing because like as you mentioned, like let's say you have very minor coronary artery disease, and once you are off the treadmill and for after a couple of seconds your heart is back to normal, we failed to detect that early. But I think with your device, it can detect world motion abnormalities very early on. And I'm just like I'm now my mind is blown because like this hopefully in the future once it it breaks through and it gets its spot in the guidelines. I do wonder, like, what are the guidelines will say, how we're going to use it, and uh, that would be very interesting here to witness for sure. So when you obtain images, so now we are getting into obtaining images continuously. We're not obtaining images in a one point of time. We're obtaining images continuously. That means we will have a huge tons of data. But I think you already thought about that, and I was going through your paper. You mentioned that. Um, um, in your lab, you developed a deep learning network to process the images. So that means I'm going to take the mental node from the physician, and I'm not going to make him read all these images. Mm. And we have a deep network that can read the images for us. Can you elaborate a bit on this? Yes, yes. Yeah. So just uh, like what I have mentioned before, uh, the, the current method is when, you, uh, when the cardiologist get the image, they will manually contour the shape of the left ventricle and then use complicated uh, the uh, calculation to extract those uh, critical cardiac parameters. This is the current uh, current method. Uh, but this this procedure is very time consuming and labor intensive. They cannot uh, uh, generate a lot of data because they, they, they only need to, uh, they only uh, can generate, for example, uh, the data from one or two uh, cycles, but uh, but uh, based on those one or two cycles, uh, uh, maybe the diagnosis may not uh, very accurate. In order to help the doctor uh, save time and also provide the uh, accuracy of diagnosis, we want we we want to uh, use an automatic method to improve the efficiency. Uh, that's why we generate uh, this idea to using those. Uh, deep learning model, deep learning method to solve this problem. Uh, we, uh, we, uh, the the model, the name of the model is FCN thirty uh, two. The function of this model is to uh, automatically uh, segment the the shape of the left ventricle. Uh, uh, so when we get the B mode imaging, we uh, input it into the model, and the model will automatically. Uh, control the shape of the left ventricle and the output, and then uh, we have the uh, some algorithm to calculate uh, the volume of the left ventricle automatically. And based on the left ventricle volume, we can further calculate 
the, uh, the stroke volume, cardiac output, and ejection fraction. The entire process is automatic, is automatic. And uh, uh, in addition, comparing with the tra traditional method, uh, our method can output a, a bunch of the data uh, rather than uh, those sporadic uh, one or two cycle data. So uh, th those more data can uh, provide uh, more accuracy when the cardiologist uh, uh, diagnose the disease. Yeah, and I think in the future, uh, uh, if we uh, train more people, more, uh, more patients uh, in our model, we can test it. We can use our uh, our model to test uh, more people. Yeah, uh, I think that is the our deep learning model. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's a and it's a big problem to solve. It's very important to solve, and I think we need a breakthrough like this. Um, because like for example, like there are those models that were developed in the past, and they can read ECGs and they can provide um, like initial diagnosis and lots of cardiologists complain of this and they don't look at it because that's lots of time it can miss diagnosis and that did not change but here i see that the models that we are using they are trainable they are you can teach them to get more accurate and that's what makes me very excited and for people who are watching this and they don't know uh, why this is important so in the special like in coronary care unit or icu those are places where we continuously monitor patients, sometimes for seven days, 10 days, 15 days. I've seen people who had critical situation for 20 days and they are on a monitor, right? So if we're going to use this device to obtain continuous imaging of the heart, let's say, so we will have tons of information and it's we can't deploy physician. We don't have enough manpower to read through all these images and tell us what happened yesterday night at four, o'clock in the morning, let's say, when we increase the dose of norepinephrine, which is one of the pressors, or dobutamine, or when we gave the patient diuretic, how did he respond? Because I see that the numbers from this help us in diagnosis in real time. And now we're talking about it, I'm having other ideas. One of the most problematic problem, one of the most problematic things that we face in medicine and like in nephrology, cardiology is developing or like uh, measuring the patient's volume status. How much fluids do we have? And sometimes it's experimental. We give Lasix, which is a diuretic, and sometimes we give a fluids to control the volume status, which is the amount of blood running through the veins and the heart, right? So with this, I think in the future, hopefully we can obtain images continuously and see the patient response to different interventions like diuretics and the fluids and have a baseline. Okay, so those numbers reflect volumic stats in this patient. Then yeah. If we have these numbers, then we are hypervolemic, we have to give diuretics. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Okay, I'm, I'm talking too much. I will, I will leave you to the talking. It's, it's very exciting. You raised a lot of uh, very fantastic points. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this, those are very good uh, future directions. Yes. Uh, in our group, we published uh, several papers uh, about those verbal uh, ultrasound devices, and in previous work, we uh, use our device to uh, to measure the blood pressure and also the uh, the right. blood flow blood flow. So uh, uh, of the uh, the, car, uh, the the very deep deep blood vessel. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think the uh, what you mentioned can be done or has been done in previous uh, work. Yeah. 
Amazing, amazing. Uh, after we finish this, hopefully you can send the list. I can read about it. Maybe we can do another interview about that. Anyways, going back to you, let's look at the horizon, uh, to the horizon now. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, we talked a lot about this device, but in the future, what else you can this you can see that we can achieve with this device, and what are the limitations that are facing this device currently? Okay, so uh, for the limitation, I think the uh, the uh, one of the uh, current limitation is the backend system is still commercial uh, bulky system, uh, and uh, those control system is a big machine. Uh, so in order to make the uh, our wearable device to be applicable at home, we need to uh, miniaturize those uh, bulky machine to a small uh, case, small, small scale, to a small scale, yeah. Uh, yeah, recently our, our group published a paper in Nature Biotechnology, and we made um, a, a small scale, or like a, a credit card sized, uh, those uh, backend control system, and we, uh, we integrated with uh, our a wearable ultrasound probe to do some testing, uh, and then in the future we can uh, improve this uh, backend system to make it more functions. Yeah, more functions. I think this this uh, this is uh, this is the a big uh, limitation or a big direction uh, that uh, the wearable ultrasound field. Uh, a lot of people are uh, are doing these uh, these things. Yeah, and the, uh, for the application, I think. Uh, there are a lot of applications. For example, we can use it to uh, image the uh, the the like the t uh, tumor or the cyst uh, of the breast, right? Uh, those those are a big. Uh, I think this is this is an important uh, application, and also uh, so uh, for the future applications, I think we can do a lot of things. Uh, uh, maybe the first one is maybe we can use our device to image those breast. Uh, uh, tumor and cyst. Uh, this is very important for those women health health status. Mm -hmm, yeah. I agree. Yeah, and uh, uh, in addition to to this, we we can also do uh, we can also use our device to image other other organs, other uh, other tissues, to, uh, and also maybe we can pr uh, provide those continuous imaging when the patient is under the surgery. When the when the doctor is provide the surgery, we can use our device to continuous monitor, continuous imaging, the surgery part. I think those are, uh, are very fantastic uh, future direction that we can do in the future, yeah. Yeah, I was reading about that also in your paper. One of the things that you mentioned that we, so for example, right now um, in this day and age, we perform lots of procedures under the guidance of ultrasound. For example, if we're going to give vasopressors, which are a group of medication to help maintain the blood pressure, we can't give them through veins. We have to give them to peripheral veins. We, we can give them through central veins. One of the big veins here, we use the jugular vein. So we put a huge needle that goes through the neck and to give these medications. And we do that under the guidance of the ultrasound. So yeah. that means one hand, I have to hold the probe. Yeah. And with the other hand, I have to direct the needle through the structures of the neck, which include muscles, arteries, veins, the lung, and there is a risk of pneumothorax. And it really depends the success of the procedure on the dexterity of the performer. But now you mentioned that also in your paper and I encourage our readers to go and check it. I don't need to use my both hands you know, when one of them is to obtain images. If I'm performing a procedure, I can do it with dispatch and I can use both my hands to stretch the skin 
change the angle and see my needle in right in real time. Not only that, obtaining a biopsy from the kidney, we use ultrasound. Removing a fluid in people of ascites, which is increased accumulation of fluids in the abdomen, we use ultrasound. So I just see like the, the application of this is just like mind blowing. It can be used in many different things and it yeah. can help future doctors as they get trained to perform procedures with less complications. It, yeah, it's yeah. mind blowing, yes. Yes, yeah, I agree with you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, thank you so much for this interview. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I know you're busy and thank you so much for giving us our time going through your paper and uh, stay tuned, everyone. I will see you next time and we will have another great inventor or a researcher or a startup founder who's trying to make a difference in healthcare in our podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much.